Hi there. Welcome back to Real Film Chronicles. As always, I'm Nathan. My name is Brian. This is episode 13 in which we discuss the movie Censor. Fantastic. This is a new movie, 2021. I'm not sure what the situation was of its release. Probably released in a couple film festivals. I don't know if it was released just online. Man, I haven't done my research on this. I was just so excited to see. I was pulled in by the cover art on it. Uh, I think someone on my letterbox friends list watched it, reviewed it. I saw the cover art. It's like, oh, what is this? Read a quick overview. And yeah, I'm, I'm basically watching this film. Um, so before we get into spoilers, we're going to talk a little bit about our initial uh, viewing of the movie, our initial uh, response to it, and our recommendation. And then we'll, we'll pop into uh, spoiler territory with fair warning to everyone who hasn't seen the movie. But uh, to get started with, let's talk about the overview here, which might be a bit spoilery as it is, but, you know, this is out there. Film censor Enid takes pride in her meticulous work guarding unsuspected audience from the deleterious effects of watching the gore-filled decapitations and eye gougings she pours over. Her sense of duty to protect is amplified by guilt over her inability to recall details of the long-ago disappearance of her sister, recently declared dead in absentia. When Enid is assigned to review a disturbing film from the archive that echoes her hazy childhood memories, she begins to unravel how this eerie work might be tied to her past. Fantastic. So what were your initial thoughts? I, I think I, I forced you to watch this early <laughs> on, maybe about a week or so ago. Um, what did you think of this movie? Um, yeah, so as soon as you told me about this movie, I went and checked out the trailer. And um, kudos to whoever put this trailer together, um, to the marketing team for this movie, because those trailers were amazing. Like they nice. instantly sold me on this film. Um, and then again, on your recommendation, it wasn't like uh, a clockwork orange kind of thing where you strap me down and force me to watch this thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, on your recommendation, I, I checked this out and um, I really enjoyed it. It was really great at setting a certain mood. Um, you know, it was set in this very specific time period. I think it was the was it the 70s or the 80s in, in England, the time of the video it was nasties. the 80s, yeah. The 80s, yeah, it was. I should have known that. I think there was like a, a brief reference to the Evil Dead in there. That would have been it. Would have been the 80s. But yeah, this was a great. Um, I guess it was more kind of a psychological thriller necessarily than a straight mm -hmm. up horror movie. So like that plot description describes what kind of it kind of describes what literally happens, but the real meat and potatoes is in really the the psychological horror of kind of what's going For on sure. and and watching Enid as she slowly kind of unravels which is really the horror as she as she kind of slowly um succumbs to her own i guess insanity yeah that's a pretty fair assessment yeah but yeah it worked it worked great as a kind of a meta commentary on filmmaking so this is one of those films about filmmaking but mm -hmm. with a horror with a horror slash thriller bent and I thought that was yeah. really, really neat the way they worked that um, that idea about filmmaking and worked it into, we'll get into it later, but the kind of a metaphor for what was going on psychologically with Enid and, and setting against that backdrop in the 80s with the video nasties in in England. I think that was that was a really, really smart move to really sell the whole, all the themes and, and everything going on. But yeah, it was it was really, really good. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. And so from the sounds of it, you probably recommend this film for... If you're into horror, you're gonna uh, psychological, especially you're gonna enjoy this movie. I would definitely recommend this film. 
both i think it's it works doubly well if you're if you're a fan of horror and especially if you're i don't want to say a certain age because you can certainly enjoy older movies if you if you weren't alive when they were originally released or if you were young but i think if you are of a certain age and, and you remember that time period of kind of that moral panic and you know issues about censorship and and those specific and that specific period of films right i think they specifically reference some actual real world films in there um it's it's kind of nostalgic uh, there's, there's there's a certain kind of nostalgia built in there as well so like if you're a hardcore yeah. horror and like that not just like the horror like we talk about today is like oh yeah the conjuring and insidious and like the mainstream horror but the really kind of exploitation horror that was yeah, really pushing exactly. boundaries of of taste and um audiences um gag reflex and that kind of thing right yeah and that that's a bit that's it exactly is the the video nasties this this era in the 80s where the uh the british the uk governments were kind of cracking down on a lot of indie films that were really just there to kind of push the limits of what they could get away with. So it's it's just kind of like grotesque and violent acts on screen just for the sake of being violent and not necessarily pushing different boundaries that are that, that have any possible merit. And I don't want to kind of like belittle uh, what these films are, but there is a lot of exploitation films being put out there just for for the sake of it right and i think that's kind of what we get into here seeing this movie in that context was really fascinating most movies we see about the film industry you know behind the scenes is, is sort of the the epicness behind them they're usually set in further back times where here we kind of have a different um setting in the 80s about a time of censorship right uh, it just comes at a different angle. It, as you said, it absolutely tackles the themes of the film perfectly. Like, I think this movie was just beautifully written. Uh, I think it was shot really well. I just loved all these uh, throwbacks to a lot of 70s and 80s horror films. Just, I think the way the movie was shot in certain stocks of film as well, um, they did a lot of interesting stuff. I was hooked on this movie from the very beginning. It, it was like I went in with... Not really much expectation, but I was looking forward to it. I I skipped the trailer, uh, just seeing a couple of reviews on it online, and seeing the poster was enough to get me in. And it's one of these movies now where I'm hooked. I'm not paying attention to my phone. I'm watching it from start to finish, <laughs> and it's not a particularly long movie, right? It's it's just under ninety minutes. I think it's uh, like mm-hmm. an, it's about an hour twenty five minutes. It moves along pretty briskly. It's really interesting and. The ending just goes absolutely to the wall. I loved every second of it. Um, it's a it's a definite recommend for me for any fan of horror, uh, without a doubt. Uh, but really, as children of the '80s, this was going on in the '80s. I think this is kind of important to to put into context here. The video nasties, where uh, there was increased crime and like violent crime in the UK. It, it, during this time and a lot of it was being blamed on movies and these exploitation films so there's a lot of pressure from the government to censor these movies and effectively restrict the release and there's quite a few uh notable films in that list as well uh i don't know if you've seen some of these but uh, it sounds like they sort of 
effectively place web into three different lists or three different categories, whereas to be fair here, I'm just reading from Wikipedia. Uh, section one, the section one list movies are prosecuted films where I'm not 100% sure what prosecute means, but you have something like Cannibal Holocaust in there. I was going to say, yeah. And I think the movie that they reference that starts it all is The Driller Killer, which I think came out in 1979. Uh, I haven't seen that one. Uh, I don't recognize a few of these, but you'll probably recognize I Spit on Your Grave, uh, yep. The Last House on the Left as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, which we're definitely pushing the boundaries of like what is obscene in cinemas, right? And so a lot of these ones, it was really interesting reading this list and seeing they were banned from release. And it wasn't until like maybe 20 years later that a lot of them ended up seeing release. There's a second section called non-prosecuted films, uh, which included The Evil Dead. Uh, so it, like the note here says, it originally passed with cuts for cinema, released with approximately two minutes cut in 1990 on home release, and then re-released uncut in 2001. So if you were in the UK and you were playing by the rules here, there was no way to get The Evil Dead <laughs> in an uncut version until 2001, which, you know, we're, we're in our 20s by then, and I, I can't imagine uh, missing out on that for so long. Uh, and then there's a, a series of, of films that they specifically called video nasties, like Dawn of the Dead, uh, Deep Red, The Demons, uh, Eaten Alive. There's a, there's a few of them in there, Friday the 13th, Part 1 and 2 were in there where they've... You could get in some trouble, they would confiscate these films, but you're not necessarily going to be you know charged for having them in, in your collection, right? But but what what an interesting thing. What when we, you know, North American children here, we didn't see that type of censorship, right? Most of our censorship is more towards um, nudity and and sex than it is violence and gore. Where violence and gore are a little more normalized in our region. Yeah. It's also interesting how this debate between um, this debate about um, media influence on behavior, specifically um, like criminal or negative behavior, has been an ongoing kind of every every, every new medium is there's been a bunch been a lot of pearl clutching and claims as oh no that's corrupting the minds of the youth and we see the same kind of dialogue mm -hmm. going on today a lot with more with video games um, but you saw it also um, at some point with different points in history with music. You know, so it's it's really interesting seeing that specific time and place, but but really, there's kind of a universality about it where that where there's that debate that's still ongoing in our in our culture, right? Yeah, and in this case, you know, the entire industry is affected by these uh, the blame that the these movies are the the cause of these violent crimes, and the movie does make mention of. The Amnesia Killer, which uh, I'm assuming is kind of a fictitious thing in here, um, but essentially the the journalists link his killings to a movie that recently passed uh, the censors and was you know available for home viewing. But they also make mention that the primary motivation for the video nasties, these banned films and censorship was to keep the hands out of children because it's the advent of home video. And so they, they mentioned video cassettes becoming available, uh, being able to restrict who enters a, a cinema, like a theater is one thing, but when you bring a video cassette into a home, 
you know, who is responsible for making sure these children don't uh, put that videotape in. Like what I read somewhere, The Exorcist was one of these video nasties as well. Uh, On the reasoning that the, the main girl is under 12 years old, so children would want to see movies with other children in it. And they would end up putting the exorcist on, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which kind of seems absurd now that, you know, any, any parent or guardian would allow their children to put on a movie like the exorcist, but uh, the government took it upon themselves to take that responsibility out of parents' hands. Well, yeah, it's interesting the point you brought up in terms of the historical context of the the time period that that censor set in is also like it's VHS was a hugely and, and beta right but essentially home video was like a huge a hugely disruptive technology it's a it was a mm-hmm. huge technological shift so anytime there's a, a huge shift in technology there has to be like a commensurate kind of social shift and and how to properly integrate that new technology in with with society right and so there's going to be growing pains and so mm-hmm. this kind of sense of kind of social slash technological unrest kind of essentially kind of frames um the entire narrative of censor um both both narratively and and, and thematically i think mm, yeah without a doubt so obviously i i think it's fair to say there'll be spoilers for the movie from here on out wait did you say um, you recommended this movie or not brian i can't quite recall <laughs> this is a hard <laughs> recommend like uh, we'll give our star ratings for the film after we finish talking about it but yeah i really love this movie i think if you yeah <laughs> it's it's great for, um, horror, for horror fans for sure would you recommend it to a yes. wider audience yes for sure just fans of know, cinema in general you know you know what i'm not i'm not really sure i mean the movie gets pretty weird it sort of ventures on that tough to consume uh, well, aspects. Definitely, the ending gets very surreal, right? It ventures into that surrealist aspect. I think that's where I would have difficulty recommending it to wider audiences. Like, if you're into horror, by now you've probably seen some movies, some horror films with strange endings that may not make a lot of sense. The these endings are open for interpretation, right? Uh, but kind of might leave you hanging for a little bit. And I think a wider audience, uh, I mean, if you don't like some ambiguous endings or even confusing ones, I mean, you got to prepare yourself for that going into this film, right? Um, and I think the movie sort of goes, I don't want to say off the rails because the movie was on rails for me the entire time. <laughs> but if you are coming at this in a more casual way, I think it's literally about 50 minutes in, one hour, or 60 minutes in. It takes a it takes a hard turn into that uh, surrealism. Yeah, it, does. It, it makes sense in the context of the movie, but mm-hmm. the kind of the style of the movie shifts a little bit. And for yeah, for uh, mainstream audiences, maybe that's not you know the easiest to digest. But I think for horror fans, for sure, this is going to be a great. Or for anybody who loves. Um, I would say like more artistic cinema experiences, right? Where you're mm-hmm. where you're not adverse to a little bit more ambiguity, where the movie makes you work a little bit harder to to kind of you know work out the answers yourself. Then yeah, absolutely, this is right up your alley. Yeah. Well, what is the term that's going around recently? Like the elevated horror. I'm not sure that I would apply this. Oh, elevated to horror. elevated horror. Quite right. 
What what would be considered what? elevated horror? What does that mean? I'm thinking movies like Hereditary and Midsummer. Okay, even The Witch. Um, well, I do love I, those. I movies. feel like those movies. Those are great movies, and I feel like they're fairly accessible to everyone. Midsummer is probably a little more difficult by the end, uh, but something like Color Out of Space um, <laughs> it ventures into that surreal. You know what is going on in my brain when I'm watching this movie, uh, where I think this one kind of tends to as well, right? But uh, I'm awful at comparing movies like that, putting them into these categories. That's a tough one for me. Well, you picked the right hobby then, reviewing movies on the podcast. Right. <laughs> it, the secret is out. I really don't know what I'm talking about most of the time. <laughs> Welcome to adulthood, I guess. This is why I always ask you the questions first. <laughs> All right, so with that being said, we're going to get into spoilers here as we go in-depth in this film. 100%, yeah. Spoiler city at this point. Let's go for it. Larby spoilers. (laughs) So, I mean, I I think we sort of understand uh, from the overview that the movie is following Enid, who is a film censor uh, working for the, you know, censorship board or whatever organization it is. Yeah, can we just want to give a shout-out to the the actor here, um, Neve Algar. She was phenomenal in this um yes and i want to see her in more movies as soon as possible she was also in um the wolf walkers so nice favorite of yours she does one of the voices i can't remember which character it was but she was in there and she was also in wrath of man which we covered in our previous episode oh no way no was she yeah she was the bank employee that he oh i can't believe i missed that Oh yeah, I want her. I want to see her more stuff. She was a, she did a phenomenal job in taking this. There's some really subtle aspects of that character Enid. Of obviously, there's a psychological struggle there, and like all the subtle stuff. And then when it gets to the end, and things go kind of you know yeah. all nuts and, and and insane, and she does a great job at going over the top as well. And it's directed. This is the directorial debut of uh, Prano Bailey Bond. Um, she did a couple short films before this, including one called Nasty, which I assume censor is going to be loosely based on and uh, expanded upon. So um, I think a- after this, I'll probably try and track down those short films. Uh, maybe yeah. they're on uh, YouTube or something. That's another thing. I'm glad you brought that up, that this was a debut film. It's like, yeah, there are directors out there. Directors out there would kill to have a debut film like this. Like this was without a doubt. Like right? this looked like the work of a seasoned <laughs> professional. With like, with, with, you think that there was like decades of of films before this that they put out, but like, no, this is a debut film. Yeah. It's like, and what a way to kind of make an entrance into the into the horror yeah. world, right? That like that, right? That that was that's even it makes the movie even more impressive when you think about it like right. that. Yeah, amazing. Did you want to? Take us through a little bit of the plot here, like how we get started. Or right, so the movie starts out um, with Enid and her fellow censors, and it kind of shows. I don't know, was it the Driller Killer? Was that the first movie that they were watching, or was it? You was know it what? I think one? they. I, I think most of the movies that they feature in this film were kind of stand-ins for the real yeah. films. I, I think they like the Driller Killer sounds familiar, but I'm just not sure if that's from looking up the movies afterwards. Yeah, I think the ones the ones that they show were like they were drilling to the guy's skull, and it, I I've, I haven't actually seen the Driller, yes. Driller Killer. I think that was, but that wasn't the movie that she was editing. There was a movie that she was editing, and essentially what happens is she and and another person are editing this movie or or deciding like how how it should be kind of edited down right as, as censors mm-hmm. and so they're giving notes back and then they but they okayed it with these edits right there was, i think that was the movie there was a whole big meeting with all the censors there 
and like the head of the department. And I was like, do we, are we going to release this? And it was, it came down to a vote and essentially Enid and another, and that, her, that gentleman there who was working with her, I can't remember the uh, character's name. Well, it was an interesting thing because the one guy suggests, well, if we make this one little cut, he would pass it. Yeah. And essentially they're kind of pressured into, no, no, let's just restrict the movie. Like they're essentially just effectively banning the film. Yeah. Instead. So either way, this film gets released in a form where there's you know, very graphic violence. And then the next day or a couple of days later, or a couple of weeks later, I can't remember the time frame, but there's a killing in the real world that very closely mirrors a killing that happened in in the movie that they released, which was specifically, I guess, the gentleman killed his wife and ate her face, I think it was, which mm-hmm. was an exact scene from this movie. And so immediately the media put together, you know, like made this connection between the movie and the killings. And for some reason, they figured out the two censors who were the, the chief censors in that movie. And it was Enid and her, her partner in crime there. And so all of a sudden they're getting yeah. pushback, um, which in... In the real world, I'm not sure that would happen. I think there'd be more pushback against the actual filmmakers who actually made these things as opposed to the censorship board. But for the purposes of the story, it it, it, yeah. it helps move things along and it ups the dramatic stakes. Um, but then, of course, Enid is, you know, trying because she seems like she's she's one of the more conservative ones there where she's she's very, mm. very meticulous, right? I think the one thing she yes. keeps saying is, I just want to make sure I get it right. I just want to get it right. Well, it's shown that she can separate her emotion from the content she's watching, right? Like she's kind of cold in the way that she like looks at these films. Like it doesn't seem to affect her at all, which I think is important for- Yeah, she's, she's able to compartmentalize, but she's also, I mean, she's- a, a normal human being with normal empathy. So of course she's like horrified that could, even though she doesn't, I don't think that she actually thinks that there's a connection between the, the, the media that they're putting out and, and the actual killing. She still, obviously she starts to question herself because real people are, you know, are suffering. She's like, could mm. I possibly have a part to play in this? And so that starts to frame some of the dialogue about, um, you know, that interplay between media and behavior, but it also starts to set Enid down this path where she starts to slowly kind of unravel psychologically, right? Like that's the first, yeah. that's the first thread that kind of starts to pull loose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, um, I think it's early on in the film like this. I can't remember whether it's, whether it's Enid or somebody else who specifically makes the connection to between, um, the editing process and the censorship process and, and human memory. Okay. Because that specifically, that could be later on I'm, I'm thinking of, but there was one character who specifically makes the connection between, you know, like yes. human memory kind of functions the same way as, as, you know, like as sensors do where we, you know, we pick and choose like where we make, we're picking where we make the cuts to make the, the movie in our side our head as palatable yeah. to the, so, uh, the individual audience of one, right? And so that kind of, yeah, that helps to really put the whole movie in context too, right? Where you see like, oh, the censorship you know, that, that job is really a metaphor for, you know, Enid's psych psychology and her, her kind of psychological journey. Yeah. And I think it's her coworker later on, like after they're, after they go through a film, I think his quote is it's surprising what the brain can edit out. And I mean, the choice of words is very deliberate in in that sense, because in the beginning of the film as well, Enid is getting these flashbacks of her childhood and specifically the day that her sister went missing 
Um, and we could also point out the the people who know that she was the censor on this film, like that's supposed to be confidential information. Yes. Uh, plays into the next part where uh, a director sends their movie in to get, uh, you know, processed in, the, in this uh, censor board, uh, Frederick North. And he specifically requests that Enid sent like reviews his film. And the film is called Don't Go in the Church yes. and plays out like identically to what the flashbacks we've witnessed so far from Edith's uh, yeah. mind. Uh, so it plays out in the same way where these two girls are sort of at a cabin in the woods. Yeah. So, sorry. The other thing really to put things in context is like Enid's dealing with this blowback from the public for the connection between her movie and, and what they're dubbing the amnesia killer and killing his, his wife. I think, mm-hmm. I think his whole family, he kills the kids too, but he eats yes. the wife's face. It's like, as, as one, I mean, if you're insane, it's like, why not? I guess go, go, go nuts. <laughs> but yeah, the other part of it is uh, we learned that um, Enid's sister went missing when they were very young. And mm-hmm. we see at a dinner where um, Enid's parents, you know, years later, this is, this is like decades later, they finally like, like have her declared legally dead um, just to kind of get some emotional closure. But we see that Enid is not ready for that, right? She's she obviously still has some unresolved psychological issues that are related to the disappearance of her sister. Um, and the whole thing was that the two girls, right, Enid and her sister Alice, I think it is. Yes. They go- sorry, uh, the sister's name is Nina. Nina, yeah. Sorry, I'm thinking of a different character. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So Enid and Nina, not a tongue twister at all. They go off in the woods to play. <laughs> And we don't really get the full story of what happens, but really Enid's the only one who comes back and the, and the, and Nina disappears. They don't find a body and the parents question Enid, but she, um, she can't remember anything. Um, and it's assumed that it's through some kind of trauma, but this really provides a context as well for what's going on. Right. So she gets sent this film, like you were saying, Brian, don't go in the church, which is, that's, I love that name too. It's such a great name for a little <laughs> horror film. And it's mirroring kind of these flashbacks that she's been having. And it's like these two little girls and one of them, the older one. And I think Enid was the older of the two siblings. Yep. And she's like, they come across this cabin, this old dilapidated cabin straight out of evil dead. And it's, it's in the middle of the woods. And she's like, and the older sibling in this movie is goading the um, younger sibling. And she's like taunting her and is like, yeah, go in the cabin and, and trying to get her to go in there. And it's all scary and creepy. And eventually the little girl, goes in the cabin and I don't think we actually see what happens. Right. I think we see, no, as it goes on, we see like the beast man. Who's this, like <laughs> this weird guy. And the, well, the beast the man is from another film. Yes. Uh, like another horror film. Right. And we start seeing like bits of him throughout these, me- these memories here as well, because I think she actually reviews uh, a beast man film, which is also a, a film directed by Frederick North. Uh, also starring the same actress that plays the the younger sister in Don't Go to the Church. And that's where, like Alice, Alice Lee, I think is the actress's name. And Enid kind of thinks, oh, this is similar to my childhood events or these flashbacks that are in my mind. And so she kind of thinks that maybe Alice Lee is her sister that went missing because she's thinking, oh, we look kind of similar or something, right? Yeah, she looks at her and is like, oh, we look kind of similar and these events, because 
this, this is the thing, right? You're never quite sure because Enid is like getting these flashbacks, but they're happening kind of interspersed with these movies she's seeing. So you're never sure like which yeah. came first, right? Is it like, is it that she's getting these flashbacks or is that these films are influencing her? And so she's starting to kind of fill in the blanks in her own memory with these bits and pieces of the film she watches, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, what is fueling what here? It's, it gets a little confusing and there's some, I think early first like dream sequence occurs. Um, and I'm not sure if this is out of the, the, the plot line here that we're sort of following, but she has a TV on, like so the TV comes on in the, in her room, she goes downstairs and it's like full of static. Oh, I love that transition where like, like the, the TV yeah. static and all of a sudden it's like the, the camera zooming in on the static and the static kind of gives way to an actual shot. Yeah. And I think that might, that shot itself might be the second static TV that we travel into, but it's like the first static TV earlier in the film kind of gives way to more, like a more coherent flashback for her, which kind of serves as a dream that is also mixed in with actual like events from the movie she just watched. As you can see, like it gets a little confusing at, at first, right? <laughs> um, sort of. Yeah. Where she's having like her flashbacks seem to be aligning with um, the events of the movie. And so mm -hmm. um, she starts to, she starts to become really convinced that this, this actor, um, Alice Lee is her long lost missing sister. And that potentially um, director Frederick North is like potentially yeah. abducted her and, and is now using her in movies. She never, she doesn't meet Frederick North up front. She's introduced to these films specifically because of the producer there. Um, Doug something. All I have written down is Doug. I think it's Doug smart. Doug smart played by Michael smiley, who you probably probably recognize from other movies as well. You recognize him when he comes on screen. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, he's this really greasy CD film producer. Um, but mm -hmm. he's the one who introduces Enid to Frederick North's work. And so in her obsession, in her growing obsession, she goes to Doug smarts, uh, house to, yeah. to confront him. Cause she's like, I need to know who Alice Eve is. And, and like, if she can unravel her background and prove that that's her sister, then she yeah. can get that closure. Um, but uh, there's a misunderstanding. One thing leads to another and she accidentally kills him. Yes. It's one of these things like he, he's basically a sleazeball. He's coming on to her pretty hard. Oh yeah. And she kind of pushes him backwards and he falls onto his coffee table where he just placed one of his like horror movie trophies that has a nice big blade on it. And I mean, I won't spare you the de details here, but it goes through the back of his head, yeah. comes out his mouth, and he's basically, he dies on this thing. Um, yeah, there's there's a not so subtle, there's a not so subtle imagery of this man being killed by one of his own awards yeah. for one of these video nasties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Literally, it's penetrating uh, his brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's also, that that's a really, it's unsettling as well, because this horrific accident death just happens. And throughout the movie, Enid, uh, for lack of a better term, like centers herself where she's kind of like crack rolls and cracks her neck a little bit. So right. at this, at this point she kills this guy and she also throughout the movie will like scratch her elbows and sorry, scratch her shoulders. And so she does both actions at this point. She scratches her shoulders and cracks her neck. 
and just continues into like this conversation like this guy isn't dead and then just walks away. Well, you you can see that when she, in her editor mode or in her sensor mode that she's able to ma- ma- maintain that emotional yeah. detachment, right? And you can see that there where she's obviously troubled by his death, but she's also like her obsession for her sister takes precedence, right? And, and she's able to, you know, in a, in a very kind of, unsettling way she's able to emotionally detach herself from this real world violence the same way she was able to emotionally detach herself from that on-screen violence and so there's there's like you said there are some very specific visual visual cues to kind of show that yeah enid is going into sensor mode and emotionally Mm -hmm. detaching herself from the situation so essentially she's you know what the other character said she's kind of censoring out in her own brain right she's she's yeah. she's doing that kind of narrative editing in her own head in order yeah, for her to I keep on functioning man <laughs> and that's where you get you start to get the real depth of the, of the psychological horror and and what's going on with the movie right it's really really yeah. it's really at the same time it's like over the top violence but these really subtle you know this really subtle psychological unraveling of this person so there's all these threads being slowly pulled where you can see Enid's descent into madness. I, I absolutely love that that sequence. So she is, you know, she's in their sensor mode. She goes back to the office, I think, after that killing. And I can't remember exactly what she's doing there, but she kind of barges into another viewing with a couple of the other sensors. And she's, you know, kind of acting a bit strange. The Her coworkers are just like, well, okay. She leaves the room, and I love this line where the other sensor... He just says, well, someone is losing the plot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, at that point, the plot really of this movie really does go off into, okay, like, are you going to be able to follow this or not? Right. <laughs> I just love that kind of, uh, it's like a self-referential <laughs> thing happening there. But essentially her whole goal there, and I think before he died, Doug kind of said, oh, uh, we are, like Frederick North is making another, uh, he's making a sequel to Don't Go With The Church. And he kind of reveals the location of that. Is that right? Yeah. So he says it's going to be Alice Lee's final film. And it's always left this kind of ambiguity. But I think in Enid's mind, like filling in the blanks, like, oh, her final film is like, is she just like her career's over? Are they planning on killing her? But you can see like she's getting stressed out about this because she's like, am I going to lose my sister again? Right. Or like, Mm. even though she's not sure that this person actually is her sister. But yeah, she does find out the location for the film shoot of this latest film. And she drives out there yeah. and there's like this one, there's this trailer on this property. Like the production trailer. Yeah. Yeah. The production trailer. It's like, it's low budget. So it's just like this small trailer and she's just kind of like lurking outside for a little bit. And then I think the actual, the, the makeup artist slash costume designer yeah. slash <laughs> she's a woman of many hats, but she comes out of the trailer yes. and asks and says, Oh, you're, you're late. Like mistaking her for another actor who's supposed to be in the film, and yeah. like Enid's acting all weird, and she like reaches on the ground and grabs a rock. Yeah, at that point like she's gonna have to defend herself or something. Yeah, but. she's acting really, really kind of sketchy. But like that, from this moment on, like everything starts to get more and more surreal. Where even that the makeup <laughs> slash costume um, woman who comes out, she's like she's asking, she's acting kind of weird too, right? Yeah, where everything's kind of like yeah. off, and it's like if you saw somebody acting like Enid would, you would have run back in the trailer as a normal person is like, this is insane. Like I'm not going to get bludgeoned by a rock lady, you know, working on a low budget <laughs> film like this is not worth it. But for her, it's just like, she's looking at this erratic behavior and it's like, no, come on in. We'll get you all fixed up for your movie. 
no problem. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, in the name of tracking down her sister, Enid like reluctantly goes in the trailer, gets fitted for a costume and gets her hair and makeup done and all this stuff. Completely bananas. I think at one point, um, the costume is there's a photo of Alice in the production trailer as well. Yep. And the lady there, like the costume designer basically says, I don't think you look like this girl in the picture. Yeah. Because Enid brings right? it up. It's like, don't we look a lot alike? And she's yeah. like, not really. Yeah. Not really. Right. So it's like, okay, that's a bit strange. And it, I think that's important because earlier in the film, when she, Enid first meets Doug Smart, the producer, he stops and looks at her and says, oh, you look really familiar. Yes. Right? And then you sort of piece together that he th- has seen Alice, who he thinks looks like Enid, right? But now we're, we have this conflicting thing where this girl who does makeup and stuff doesn't think they look similar. Well, I think there's some ambiguity there because later on when, they, when she's at Doug's place there before she kills him, accidentally, it's manslaughter, not murder. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or self-defense i guess because he was really he was he was gonna oh, yeah. he was gonna assault her he was yeah sorry I, yes he was gonna sexually assault her so that was definitely self-defense but still gruesome um it, it cast doubt on whether or not he actually thought she looked like alice or yeah. whether it was just like a sleazy kind of come online right it's like oh that's right I, have you been in movies before like it's like this like yeah. really sleazy pickup line and the whole thing is like could she have just misconstrued this guy's sleaziness for in a desperate attempt to fill in those blanks in her head. It's like, Oh, exactly. Yeah. Where she's like, as a almost like that kind of conspiracy theory ask kind of make, just like taking these points of data and trying to find some kind of correlation. Right. And then the film goes into <laughs> a whole other world here. So basically uh, Enid is now in full costume and she's kind of like going out towards the set. Yeah, and she's in the middle of the woods and there's like yeah. one like lit up portion with some floodlights and she's just like wandering through the woods and like with no direction to this, this lit up area. Yeah. And she finally meets Frederick North, the director who's basically sitting there in shadows, like expecting her saying, I, I can't remember if he says you're late or something, but they start yeah. having this, this conversation. Um, and she is essentially confused because she's not, she's not an actor. She's not an actress of this movie. But the director starts directing her and it's just like, you need to get into the right frame of mind. And he starts kind of uh, uh, trying to motivate her in different ways. And she's pretty cold at first. She's like, no, like I'm not, I don't know what, what's going on here. And she does start getting emotional when she starts talking about her sister. And he's, the director, North, is just like, okay, good. We're going to use that emotion and get started on this film. Um, as this is happening, as soon as she's in costume, the film does something I love it. really interesting, but I, I can't get enough of the the aspect ratio slowly gets more confined. It, it starts reducing in size. Um, it, it essentially just brings in the the sides into a, essentially a a black box, like a well, essentially you it, have it brings down from like standard. Would it be anthropomorphic or would it just be like letterbox? I don't know. Whatever. It's just like a letterbox. Like, you, like when you're watching nine. this on your widescreen TV, uh, yeah, you have black bars on the top and bottom. This is the aspect ratio of the movie that you've accepted. And it starts bringing in those sides. So now you're kind of like looking at a square image, but it's fully framed in black bars on the top, bottom, left, and right. It almost ends up like, it, it it kind ends of, up like in a four by three ratio, though. Exactly. And I think that's there to mimic the, the frame size of the f- low-budget film of don't go in the church 
and don't go in the church yeah. too, right? Because the whole thing is like other points in the movie when things have gone into dream sequences or when they've been watching the movie, that that aspect ratio changed as well in the movie. So all of a sudden it's like you're giving you're being given these these really neat visual cues is like, oh, mm-hmm. thing things aren't this may not be the reality that we've been following, right? Whereas like yeah. it's like this may be getting into either filmland or dreamland or both. Yeah. So the shooting of Don't Go in the Church 2 begins. And I'm not sure if you picked up on this other change, but we're already at the proper aspect ratio. But I think the frame rate changes when we're in filming mode. So the filming mode is basically Frederick North controlling the camera and she's coming into the cabin and they are acting like they're going through the scene. And she sees Alice there and she gets really emotional. Uh, Go ahead there. No, it feels like the film stock actually changes. So like you're getting that yes. come almost like grainy look, right? Where it's yep. almost, almost being it shot grainy. on like um, old like eight millimeter or something, right? Yeah, it, it gets grainy. I wouldn't be surprised if the frame rate dropped from like the standard 24 to like 15 or 18 or something. Like I noticed a lot of stuff changing there. And essentially, I, I think she gets really emotional. She sees the uh what is it the demon guy sorry not beast she man. Sees beast boy beast man <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is great because he's in other movies and she can now she cannot separate her fantasy from reality at this point she's thinking oh this is my sister alice is my sister beast man has taken her she picks up an axe and starts going at him and he yells out this isn't part of the script. <laughs> and she proceeds to brutally kill him with the axe, right? Oh, yeah. And at that point, everyone starts screaming. I think the makeup person is there off screen. Well, uh, Alice is screaming. It's just like things are crazy at this it's point. It's kind of neat ahead. because like they, the same cabin, right, from the other movies yeah. or the other visions. And she, she grabs an axe and she goes inside. And she sees her sister or who she thinks is her sister, right? This 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 character played by, by um, was it Alice Lee. Yep. And then the beast man comes over and she thinks that beast man's going to like attack his attack um mm-hmm. uh, this other actor but instead he like embraces her and it's like almost like they're in love or like they're yeah. they're friendly but she still like she goes out with the axe and all this whole time all we're seeing is like beast man um Enid and Alice but then like you're saying as soon as she starts attacking um beast man with the with the axe and then all of a sudden it pulls back and kind of all of a sudden when the camera shifts around again, you see it's like, oh, there's a director and there's the crew yeah. who are recording this. It's like, and you're like, all of a sudden it's like, did she just <laughs> actually kill an actor on stage? Not on stage, but yeah. like in the middle of a shoot. It's like, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, like questioning reality. And like, mm-hmm. and you're like, was that a movie? Was that a memory? Was that a hallucination? And all of a sudden it's right. like, this is where the, where you're really like going down the rabbit hole with Alice here. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild at that point. I don't even remember what happens, but something significant happens where uh Beastman is kind of dead, but like there's like a face that emerges from his dead body. Oh yeah. And starts talking to Enid. Is that right? Yeah. And then what happens next is she takes the ax and swings it around and cuts off Frederick North's head. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll remember that image for the day I die. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty wild. And that, I mean, that looked just like it came out of the, like a, a cheap 80s horror film. I loved every second of it. Oh, yeah. 
even the prosthetic there where his head what where his head was missing it looked like that could have been out of evil dead for sure <laughs> oh my goodness so i think like alice like the actress alice runs out of the cabin oh, yeah, she, enid runs after her yeah she bolts uh, enid chases yeah. her with the axe in the hand still yeah i mean she from alice's perspective it's like oh this is this this lady is nuts like i'm gonna get murdered out here she just killed two other people in this production uh but maybe it is still maybe she convinced did. maybe she didn't yeah maybe she did maybe she didn't <laughs> um and really it's just like i i th- what, what what happens they encounter each other in the woods i mean alice is terrified so, but from enid's perspective like she's saving alice yeah she's still so from from enid's perspective she's still utterly convinced that Alice was her sister, Nina, who was like, who disappeared years ago, who was kidnapped mm-hmm. and who's now working on this movie. And so she's still thinking like, Oh, I'm going to save you. But like Alice is obviously looking at, it's like, here's this crazy lady who came to set, killed one of my co-stars with an ax is now chasing me through the woods with the same ax. It's like, this, this lady's going to, she's nuts. She's going to kill me. And so there's a bit of dialogue back and forth. And like Alice, I think runs away again. And then you see, all of a sudden, in Enid's hand is the video control that she would use yes. when she would, would watch these movies as she was censoring them. And also, mm-hmm. there's another kind of visual clue to what's going on, where she like <laughs> takes this control and she starts like presses these presses these buttons, and then things really go off the rails at the end. Not off the rails, but things get even more kind of wacky here. As I think, yeah, I think from my interpretation, it's Enid going kind of into those further depths of madness here. Yeah, without that, I interpreted it the same way. So I think it, it might be important that aspect ratio it was maintained until uh, North, the director, uh, yelled cut. And we we are shockingly brought back to the full yes. aspect ratio of the regular movie, uh, which the rest of the movie plays out in. However, there's a lot of distortions and kind of like film um, issues going on every so often. And it's just at one point, like Alice, the actor says, this isn't real. And we see sort of like a disturbance in the film that we're watching. And it's like Enid kind of like overrides that, right? And it plays out like, oh, this is a kind of nice fantasy. And we literally see the two of them walking off into the woods in bright light. Like uh, like everything is, is a nice, happy ending. Um, yeah. And I think at that point it goes to her parents on the street. There's literal, literal rainbows in the sky her parents are super happy. Enid has saved the day. Enid has brought Nina back. Everyone is happy, but the film keeps cutting in and out of this gray, like sad reality where her parents are crying and everyone's upset. And I think, I mean, my interpretation is Enid is just overriding that uh, with her own fantasy at that point. I think they pull up in a car, right? I can't possibly. I don't remember. I can't remember, but it's it's Enid and Alice still in their costumes from the movie, still covered in fake, potentially real blood. And then, like, Alice runs across the streets to, I take it, their childhood home with their parents standing out in front. And they're all smiling. And Alice runs over the happy family reunited. But as you're saying, like, every once in a while, there's this bit of static. And it cuts to, like, Alice changes to, like, she's screaming in terror. But then it kind of, like, blurs and static and cuts back. Or it cuts, like, her parents kind of, like, you're saying, like, there's a bit of static. And it's, like... So this gray, it's almost like there's a film underneath the film that's kind of poking through 
and it's like her yeah. her parents are like you know crying uncontrollably but then it kind of cuts back to this happy you know rainbow technicolor ending where this like this family is reunited and Enid is across the street still still covered in blood in this costume from the movie and I think she like slowly turns around away from her family but she's like smiling really creepily at the camera and then the ending comes up where it's like it cuts to here's this VHS player and it pops out yeah. the movie itself called censor. <laughs> and then it goes to the credits. Yeah. So what, what did you think of that very last moment when the movie censor comes out of, of the, <laughs> uh, the video cassette deck there? Okay. So to be honest, I was watching this and I had to kind of cognitively recalibrate a little bit because, mm-hmm. um, I, I was expecting a more straightforward ending. Yeah. And so it took me a little bit to change gears to get on board for the more ambiguous ending. And I was like, the first I started watching, I was like, oh, this is, this doesn't really fit. But I was like, ah, oh, it's like, it's too ambiguous. I was like, that's how I sounded in my own head, <laughs> the, my past self. But then I remember stuff like, it's like, oh, like Donnie Darko, you know, one of my, one of my favorite yeah. movies. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't make, you know, like you can watch that and not have a, a lick of sense or like, yeah. you can watch it and like not have any clue what's going on. It's like, this doesn't make any sense, but I still love that movie. So I had to kind of recalibrate is like, you know, put it in that context of like that more, that, that ambiguity and, and interpretation. Um, so the ending kind of caught me a little bit off guard, but the more I think about it, the more I really like the way they did that, where there was, they didn't specifically spell everything out. You know, mm-hmm. they, they did, they took a really artistic approach to kind of, you know, they built it all up. And so that ending felt like there was enough um, narratively anchored before that, that last, I guess, 20 minutes or yeah. so that is like, okay, I can follow. There's enough evidence in here that I can reasonably take that ending, which gets super trippy mm-hmm. and make a reasonable um, interpretation of my own based on the evidence that I have, but it's left open to interpretation. And I really, really like that. And that, that whole ending scene in this kind of like, you know, leave it to beaver kind of, you know, like fifties sitcom, perfect world <laughs> with this kind of other, almost like two movies, like one um, placed over yeah. the other one. And like the, almost like reality trying to get through fantasy. I thought it was like really, really super creepy and really well done. It's like, mm-hmm. even though it's like it's bright sunshines and rainbows, but it's like the whole thing was like super unsettling. Yeah, man. The execution like was perfect. I was, like I said before, I was pulled in from the very beginning um, and when it got in like that 60 minute mark, like that sequence where we talked about, she pulls up to the production of the movie, like within a movie, uh, I think was at the 60 minute mark. It's literally 24 minutes of pure insanity, of <laughs> pure insanity. Yeah. I mean, I have no other words for it. And I was absolutely loving every second of it. It's just like, I'm really enjoy it when a movie can, can present that type of uh, feature to me. And I think you, you nailed it there when you said it gave you enough hints and, and like it laid down the groundwork beforehand to give you the ability to interpret it as you will. And I like that it didn't treat us, you know, with kid gloves on, like it treats the, the viewer as an intelligent person who can make up their own mind. And that doesn't need to be force fed every little thing. It's just like, I'm so used to a lot of blockbuster films that are designed for, big theatrical box office openings and like 
you know, initial audience reaction is so important because they just need that box office return immediately. It's like, I need these types of movies to like bring out the, the film lover in me. Right. It's just like, they are still making movies for, for non box office audiences. Yeah. Where it forces you to use your brain when you're watching. Right. Whereas like, it doesn't, they don't have like exposition man come on screen and explain is like, Oh yeah. Godzilla is awakened by the nuclear energy because of X, Y, and Z is like, yeah, we just saw that on screen. You don't need to explain it to me again. It's like, there really yeah. was no expo- exposition here at all. Was there? Well, there's not really like your standard exposition, but there wasn't like, there weren't exposition machines. Yeah. His sole purpose was just to like, tell us what's going on. It's like, no, like here's what's happening. And like, you're, as the viewer, it's up to you to piece these clues together and to come up with your own mm-hmm. interpretation of what's going on. And to like, yeah. and even if it's not, even if it doesn't lend itself to multiple interpretations, it's like, I like that it wasn't like a literal ending. Cause if you just would have had like a literal mm-hmm. ending that was straightforward, it would have, it wouldn't have had the same kind of impact. But the fact yeah. that it was so surreal and there was that ambiguity about like what's real and what's not, and like that really lent itself well to the themes of the film. But also just the 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 film itself and structurally and and visually, um, it just it just worked really really well, better than a kind of more conventional ending, right? It was incredible. I really enjoyed a lot of different aspects of the film. Obviously, the the plot and the the setting of the film, the context of it. Uh, I mean, it's a film about films, and it's a it's about the film industry in a light that I haven't really seen before. Yeah, like I've seen some documentaries on film censorship and and whatnot, but I think it was more of a North American uh, angle. And seeing this from the UK, oh, like it was just really fascinating uh, that this stuff was going on. And it makes a lot more sense where, you know, in the 2000s, I'm discovering, especially over the past five or six years, I'm discovering a lot of these video nasties for myself. Like they weren't yeah. on my radar before, right? Like now I can go through that list and say, oh, I've seen a bunch of these without really knowing that they were you know, previously banned films. And when these movies come out on home video, like DVD or Blu-ray now, we get these different cuts of the film. It's like, oh, where do these different cuts of the movie come from? Yeah. There's like a, a UK cut, and it's because they were released in the 80s to different levels of censorship. And it was just really fascinating. I loved some of the throwbacks here to a lot of these uh, Jallo films I've been watching with the lighting. Yeah. Uh, specifically in the woods, She's going through the dark woods, but there's like red spotlights coming out of the woods. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense why there'd be a red spotlight out there. <laughs> it just looks cool, right? And, you know, I can really appreciate that stuff. There's a lot of work there early on that I, I noticed where it was pretty claustrophobic. Like they're inside their office. I don't think there's any windows in their office, uh, which makes sense for like, you know, they're reviewing movies. But every bit of their office is claustrophobic. Her commute home is through the London tube system, I'm guessing, uh, where it's just these long tunnels. And that's claustrophobic, right? She's on a subway surrounded by 50 people. That's claustrophobic. There's there's just a lot there that seems to lend itself to someone losing their mind, right? Uh, she has a routine to go through and she has to uh, sort of turn her emotional core off to objectively uh, censor these, these films. Uh, but stuff is going to get through the cracks. Uh, it, was, it was just absolutely wild. No, it was really great. Like you said, the whole, it was a very kind of oppressive atmosphere, which really worked mm-hmm. to mimic kind of, you know, 
essentially mimic Enid's psychology or her psychological state, right? I just want to make mention of the amnesia killer in the movie that they, uh, this is the guy who killed his wife and ate her face, right? Uh, later on in the movie, it's kind of a throwaway line in the background. Uh, a couple of the censors in the background, like her coworkers, are talking about it, like they're reading a news article and said, oh, the guy didn't even watch the movie, right? So it's just like, it just sort of shows you how quick the news and these organizations were to jump on films as the blame yeah. for all these violent acts. And, just, and we see the same thing mirrored now, especially, I think for, for me at least, growing up with video games and seeing in the 90s, North American uh, video games get rating systems and a lot of violence being blamed on them. And we, d- we find out, oh, these kids haven't even played these video games, right? Yeah. Uh, but they're still the blame and they, they suffer the repercussions of censorship and uh, restricted sales and the whole nine yards. Yeah, it was also interesting, too, in the film, it kind of showed um, that kind of subculture, right? Where um, Enid is trying to track down some oh, more yes. films by, by Frederick North. And she goes to the one like this. It was also th- it's also nice to see is like, I remember those old video stores and going you know, like that that brought back some memories. But she goes to the guy at the counter, and she's like, "I'm, you know, I'm looking for certain kinds of movies." And she's kind of beating around the bush, and he's like, kind of playing dumb. But it's like, no, yeah. under under the counter, all these banned films he's got copies of, and he rents them out to a certain select clientele. So yeah. it's like almost as like an underground kind of move, almost like a resistance movement, right? Like a cultural oh, yeah. kind of artistic resistance movement, where like the government's saying, "Oh, we they're treating us like children. We can't watch these." It's like, no, we're gonna have our own. All it does is like drive it underground and people are going to watch them anyway. I like that she has to like pull out her film nerd knowledge yeah. by like proving that she has seen these movies. Like she's seen all these movies, all right? But it's just like she has to throw out a, a bunch of violent, horrific acts that are in some of the, in one of the films to prove to this guy, oh, I've seen, like this yeah. woman has seen this stuff. She is on the inside. She's good to rent to. Yeah, proving that, uh, that gatekeeping is not a, uh, modern phenomenon. <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's interesting. Having kind of having to prove your your street cred, but also it's almost like you know being in that kind of in that inner circle. It's like you say the right words. It's almost like a password to get that's to get right. in, right? But in order to get ha- know the password, you have to already be in, right? So it's like this weird kind of catch twenty two, where it's like if you're not part of that circle, then you're not then you're not you can't become part of the circle, yeah. but in order to become part of the circle, you have to be in the circle. It's like it's like that old Old Spice ad by Bruce Campbell. It's like, if you have it, you need more of it. <laughs> if you don't have it, you never have to begin with. <laughs> it's interesting because she's fascinated by the Frederick North movie. She wants more of it. And they have an archive of these films at her office. And there's a lady that works the, like the archive. Oh, yeah. And Edith goes there just like, can you bring up what other films North has done? And... The lady's like, well, do you have a list of these movies? I was like, no, I don't. I don't know what else he's made. He's like, well, it's going to take at least a week to find these movies. It's just like, what kind of pre-internet crazy world do we live in here, right? It's like it was difficult to find it, but it's like these weren't by any means popular films. Like these are underground indie exploitation films to begin with. Yeah, Uh, It's going to be difficult to to even keep track of all all this stuff. Uh, I, I like that angle as well. Yeah, no, there's a lot to love about this film. So what was your interpretation then of, of the events? How how do you interpret the ending and, and the whole movie in general? How does like how does that ending recontextualize the rest of the movie, if at all? Well, I I watched the movie for the first time a couple of weeks ago, 
And I kind of just let these movies wash over me and I don't try and read too much into them. And it, it felt really good. I absolutely fell in love with it. I've said it too many times now. I rewatched it last night before we recorded this and I was trying to focus more on, you know, what, what does this mean? And I really took out of it that, yeah, she basically just got lost in her own psychosis there, right? Uh, I really feel like when we get uh, the static TV screens, we're being transported into these, these fantasy uh, sequences with her. Um, the entire last sequence is layering a film on top of a film. I think you said that earlier. I love, I love that term where it's just like these... These events are happening at the same time, but the her brain is interpreting it completely differently. Like she's living in her own film now, right? Uh, it's her own fantasy. Um, and so I really think like if there's any question on did she actually kill those people? Was it part of the movie? No, I think she legitimately killed those actors. I think she just got lost in her own mind and possibly the end of the film where she's at home with with the the sister is just like maybe they came out of the woods or something near this house with her parents police are pulling up i don't know it does it basically it doesn't even matter at that point it's just that's the fantasy that she's going to continue living in no matter where she is now like there's no more layering happy that happening there right it's just like she's in pure fantasy now yeah so my interpretation of the film was like, i think i was trying i was i was overthinking it the first time i, I went through it yeah and it was, wasn't until later it's like no it's it doesn't have to be super super complex it's, it can be complex an idea without being overly mm-hmm. complex kind of narratively so essentially what happened i think essentially everything that happened up until um that film shoot right that was mm-hmm. her that was that was reality right she really lost her sister she was in the woods. Something happened that traumatized her that caused her to have that memory loss. And she's been coping with that mental illness mm-hmm. ever since, right? Where she can't remember that. And that trauma has affected her a lot more deeply um, than she even realizes. I think that's part of her her ability to remain detached, right? Has been part of her coping mechanism. I think that her her emotional detachment from, from watching these films and censoring them, I think, is meant to show... Um, kind of an, an unhealthy detachment mm-hmm. where she literally can't engage with these horrific acts, right? She, she can't process them. So she has yeah. to keep herself at arm's length, right? Cause you see that as soon as she starts to, you know, engage with them on any real meaningful level, everything starts to unwind, right? She sees those movies and they trigger something in her traumatized mm-hmm. mind, um, whether or not, you know, she, her and her sister actually found a cabin in the woods or there was a man or anything. I think that's open to interpretation. But what we do know is that she went in the woods with her sister one day, something happened, something traumatic happened. Um, only Enid was able to come back. Um, either yeah. we, we assume alive, not assume alive, that Enid is alive and that her sister, we're assuming that she's actually dead, right? Um, or potentially missing. And then her, you know, her parents are trying to cope with it and Enid's not able to process this properly because of that, Mm. that unresolved issues with her trauma. And then when she gets the shoots, right, all of a sudden is that fantasy and reality really start to, because of her obsession, they start to overlap and kind of they're interchangeable. And she goes to that set. She really thinks that Alice, um, Alice Lee is her sister, but then she Mm. goes to the set and she's lost in this fantasy world. She kills that actor. She really kills the director and then she chases Alice out into the woods, and then yeah. that whole ending essentially is like we like I think like you said was just like her brain trying to process this, 
and it's essentially censoring out the things that she doesn't want to remember or can't deal with and and overwriting or editing those with the with with a reality that she can take so she's that's right no she's whether or not i like to think that ending is like yeah she actually kidnaps alice and brings her to her parents' house in reality. Yeah, yeah that and she's makes like, sense, yeah. I found my sister, mom and dad. Yeah. And that, that's why, that's why you see like that gray kind of underlying reality brick forward. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Alice is like, I don't know what's going on. Her, her parents are like, you know, like they're seeing their daughter break down and they're seeing like her bring this complete stranger. And it's like, look, I found my sister. And like, so like yeah. you see that. So that I, makes I, a lot more I sense, think that yeah. that's kind of, that's more vague and that's just my own interpretation. But that whole ending is like, yeah, she's lost in her own delusions. Essentially, she killed those people on that movie set. Yeah, um, as as because she couldn't mentally when because she compartmentalized for so long, and then her fantasy and her reality came crashing together when she tried to process it again. And then, yeah, yeah. she killed the people in the movie set, and then she just went completely, um, I guess, certifiably insane, right? Yeah, where she didn't, where she she couldn't tell reality from um, fantasy anymore by the end of the movie. Yeah. And I think her fantasy really got kickstarted when her parents provided the death certificate for her missing sister, right? Because she wasn't ready to let go. She, that wasn't any kind of closure for her. That's when she really needed to get her own closure. And it kind of coincided with the Frederick North film that she had to, to right. review. So there was the um, perfect psychological storm, right? Where there was this catalyst yeah. where it's like, no, all of a sudden there was like a, almost like a ticking clock for her. It was like, no. I have to prove that she's alive as soon as possible to to counteract this the death certificate you know, where she desperately needed to be this alive. Out. Okay. I'll throw this at you where Frederick North wanted her to specifically watch that film, right? Now, it had been previously established that they knew who was watching which films. And there was a little bit of, I mean, just a couple of lines about, oh, who leaked that information from the from the office, right? It's like, did she possibly leak it herself? You know what I mean? It's just like, her coworkers suspect that she is doing something like that. But when she meets Frederick North, they have this conversation. And at one point he says, all of my movies are based on true events, which is either something that she needed to hear or she latches onto, but it's something the audience, like the us, the viewer can say, okay, does he actually know her? Like, does he know yeah. about her past? Right. And it's like, that's really weird. And then one quote I pulled out that he said is, take control of your story, which she does 100% afterwards is she is now living in her own fantasy world. She's taking control of that story. Right. I think it's really interesting because they're really throwing that ambiguity in there where you mm-hmm. see afterwards what Frederick North was actually doing is that he's saying all these things to try and get his actor into this emotional yeah. state that he wants. Whereas like, is it any of what he's saying actually true? I mean, he could just be right. making that up to make to get her into character, right? So like and take control of your own story. So all of a sudden she's starting to take these things like literally, right? Where she's yeah. that that's a great example where she's she's in this mental state where she can't separate out reality and fantasy and she's taking things literally, right? But that's another kind of great kind of meta commentary is like take control of your own story. And even the clue at the end where she's literally holding out of nowhere. She's holding that device, yeah. that she, like the video <laughs> control device, where she you could like easily rewind yeah. stuff to rewind the movie to to watch it over and over again from her control booth. Yeah. It's like that was an obvious clue, I think, where it's like we're no longer in, even though the aspect ratio of the movie switches back out to the quote unquote mm-hmm. reality. I think that's meant to show that at that point it's like you're seeing these fantastical elements in the 
aspect ratio that's associated with reality. So all of a sudden you're seeing like, oh yeah, fantasy is bleeding over into reality now. Where like she's she literally yeah. literally has taken control of her own story, right? Or she's like, it is actually amazing how much the human brain can edit out when it when it doesn't yeah. want, right? Absolutely amazing. I think you summed it up and articulated it really well there. I mean, I couldn't say it any better, but I absolutely agree. Like, what what an incredible film. With that, I mean, I know we both recommend the film from earlier, but what is your star rating? Uh, out of five stars, what do you give this thing? So my initial star rating was four out of five stars, and I mm -hmm. have the sneaking suspicion that that's going to sneak up um, <laughs> as I rewatch this again. I wasn't really sure. I thought, uh, I know we've been talking about disagreeing on films every so often. It's like, oh, maybe I've found a film that, that Nathan may not enjoy as much. And it's just like, no, no, man, we are enjoying this just as much. Now, I gave this movie four and a half stars on first viewing. I did watch it again. Um, I can't think of a reason why I would knock a half star off of it. So maybe it's a five star movie for me. It's definitely a, a phenomenal film. I would love to pick this up on home video when it comes out. Uh, if it comes out <laughs> on on home video, own it on home video yeah. today. <laughs> I want to get this thing on video cassette. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But uh, absolutely incredible. Highly recommended. Um just great film. And I'm just looking forward to what this director does next. Uh, it's just great. Yeah, I'm very motivated to go find her short films now. Uh, it's yeah. not something I usually go out and try and do is find short films to see uh, where a lot of these feature films come from. Because quite often short films are kind of a proving ground for directors. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be 10 or 15 minutes and it gets enough attention and justifies a big budget. Or I shouldn't say big budget. I don't know what the budget of this film is, but it was enough for a studio to give her some money and realize this this uh, vision in full. Really fantastic. Yeah, highly recommend for um, lovers of horror, but also lovers of movies in general. I, I like that. I'm not always, I don't know, as a movie lover, yeah, sometimes I'm on board with movies about movies. Sometimes they can be mm -hmm. a little maybe bordering on pretentious. But this yes. one was like, it was a horror movie in its own right, but it was also this great love letter to horror movies and a specific era of horror movies. So it was really yeah. nice to see that in there. So if, you, if you're a lover of, of horror movies or if you're a lover of movies about movies, I think that this is a really unique take on, you know, like linking that, you know, that psychological thriller aspects with, you know, mm -hmm. trauma and using censorship slash editing as a metaphor for the human mind dealing with trauma in, in different ways. Right. That, that was, yeah, just again, it was great. It was a horror movie with substance. And I think, yeah, I mean, up there for me um, in the kind of modern pantheon of horror films with films like Hereditary and uh, Midsummer and The Endless and Resolution, um, all kind of more like horror films with you know quote unquote something to say but like some substance yeah. and some depth to them right so you can you can have mm -hmm. horror and you can have it you know actually explore kind of real world themes right and it's it's really great yeah. to have those that depth of enjoyment we can, you can enjoy it on a visceral level for the blood and the gore and the psychological um you know unraveling of like another human being which is weird <laughs> to say but you can also enjoy on that level of you know explorations of trauma and and you know, psychologically trying to cope with, um, yeah. um, life events that are too difficult to process maybe, right. Or, or really, really difficult events in your life. And that's like, I think that that kind of 
multiple layers of meaning really adds to the enjoyment of this film. And that's a wrap on another episode of The Real Film Chronicles. Thank you so much for listening and hanging out with us today. We're having a great time putting these together and love sharing these episodes with you. We can be found on a few platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, all of which are linked in the show notes. You can also reach us by email, and of course, you can find our website at realfilmchronicles.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves and others, and keep that film journey going.